to it. <laughs> okay, so uh, welcome to Psalm Thing to Drink About. My name is Alex Van Amberg. I'm a certified sommelier with the Court of Master Sommeliers and a certified specialist of wine with the Society of Wine Educators. I'm Christy Collins, and I am married to this voice, and <laughs> I've got the three, voice. three kids. You do. And I'm a yoga teacher. You are. You're a certified yoga teacher. I am. With continuing education going on. Lots of education going on. So much education. Loving the education. Yeah. Love to teach. I, well, and, and continuing to learn keeps challenging you. It makes you keep oh. your keeps keeps it fresh, keeps it real. So fun! It makes life so exciting. Christy and I, she doesn't know anything about wine. I know a little bit about wine. I keep learning all the time, and we're just going to go through a wine together. We talk about the wine. We talk about what we know about the wine, what we don't know about the wine, and we just make it fun and interesting. So, join us on our little excursion here. Um, if you've caught us on iTunes, great. If uh, if your friends are different type of uh, computer users, we're on Spotify. We're on Breaker. We're on um, iTunes. We're on blah blah blah. Stitcher. Stitcher. Yeah, we're all <laughs> over the place. And we also, you can find us on the web too at Psalm Thing to Drink About, S O M M T H I N G to Drink About. And Instagram. And uh, yeah, it'll direct you to our Buzzsprout webpage where you can listen to all of our past episodes. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, today we have a wine in our glass uh, and we're going to go through this wine together. So, Christy, um, the, you know the five S's. Uh, let's start with the, you see it. What do you see in the glass? It's a very dark, blackish, purpley. Mm-hmm. Oh, let me put it over the paper. Shoot. And that's a, a good reminder. I'm putting reminder. it up over the black desk, <laughs> and it's... it looks very black. But when I put it over the paper, it's not see-through at all, except at the very edges. Mm-hmm. It's really dark. Well, that's an important note, that when you're actually trying to look at the color of a wine, keep in mind what your background is behind the wine. Holding it up against a dark background is going to give you a false read. Treat it like you're trying to you know, white balance your camera. Hold it up against a white background. Yeah, white balance your camera exactly. like you do. Yeah. So I knew that. You're right. It is very dark. Um, and uh, it's almost, it looks like kind of like prune juice. Um, it's get that purpley dark. Yeah, but it doesn't have brown. the brown tint. Okay. Do yeah. you see a brown tint? Good point, because prune juice is very brown. It, it has a brownish thing, but it's as dense as prune juice, mm-hmm. but it's more um, deep purple. It is a very dark. It has a very dark purple black like eggplant, um, and then it, and towards the, the edge, the it turns like a carmine, um, you know, a lighter red in the meniscus. Yes, uh, beautiful colors. Absolutely yeah, beautiful. gorgeous. And not translucent at all, but uh, it doesn't appear to have any um, any sediment in the glass. When I swirl it in the glass, um, it's got a, a nice sheen on the side. The color rides up on the side of the glass a little bit, but not not overwhelming. It doesn't stain the glass, Mm-mm. but it's definitely a dark color, and it definitely has a rich um, physical look to the wine. Yeah, it does. So, um, second S, then. Ready to move on to smell? Sniff. Ooh, it's yummy. It smells yummy. I don't know why. Mm. Doesn't it? Mm-hmm. it? Smells earthy. Right. Do you get that? Is that yes. wrong? No, there's, um, you, you are, you are absolutely right. There's, um, this is a brand new wine to me. A lot of times we'll do wines that I'm a little bit familiar with. So this one I've never opened before. So this is actually very exciting for me because that, that earthy note on there, that it's, um, it's leather, it's earth, it's, um, there's a sweetness to it, almost a, a, a sweet uh, dried fruit note on, on the undertones there. Um, and it's slightly, um, I'm going to say... Uh, like dried blueberries. 
like dried blueberries, but there's but also the like a- The smell of dried blueberries, not the taste. Obviously, I haven't tasted it yet, but I think I did taste it you did. accidentally because I just took it and tasted it like it was my glass of wine. And there's a, and there's a potting soil um, or a fresh earth element there. I don't know. Potting soil is too, too rich. In I don't your... know about fresh earth. Okay. Like what is fresh earth? I don't understand that. That sounds- um, When you- It so... sounds a feat. Well, you go outside and, and let's say you're, you're working in the yard or whatever like that, or you're working and you and you when you when you first sh- put a shovel in the ground and you lift up that first spade of dirt and you turn it over, there's an there's an odor that wafts up from that. There's a there's a dirt smell and it's moist and it's earthy and you can and you smell fresh earth. It smells like you know. Is okay. Does it have a little cedar smell to it? Is that fresh earth to you? No. Well, cedar smells like cedar. Okay. I don't know. Well, because a lot of times on a garden anyway, there's mm-hmm. cedar chips or something. Okay. Do you get cedar off of this? Because there is that element there, now that you mention it. Well, I did, I thought. Because mm-hmm. that's what, I don't smell the fresh earth. Like, it doesn't smell like my garden anyway. But it smells like when I had some um, bark in my car. Mm-hmm. It smells like the bark of... So, and sometimes you have bark on your garden and you turn it over and you can kind of smell that barky smell. Right. So that cedar bark. So that's what it smells like. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, let's move on to taste. Which I've already done. So sorry. Okay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <clears throat> it's super. Is this, are these the same? <laughs> Oh, really? That good? Oh, it's my first red wine of the day. And that always makes me sneeze. <laughs> Is, are these the same? Uh, no, the wine you were drinking. So I had a different starter wine. Well, I, you tell me. I mean, do they taste the same to you? No, not at all. Okay, so no, they're not the same wine at all. Okay. So you can tell the difference. You don't even need to ask me. You can you can tell by just by tasting those two wines. Right, because I thought you were going to do the wine that I opened. Right, and we talked about that briefly, but then I but realized then you, that was kind of taking the fun out of it You for did you. a total switch on me, which is kind of exciting. Well, this they, is you much... can even look at the wines, and they do have some similarities to them, but the, the other wine that you were drinking earlier is clearer. Um, it's more see-through. It has less dark core there's some similarities in color profile but it's got more red to it this so is it's... really um tart um it feels like it's it's giving a um well it's really dry it feels like a washcloth on my tongue <laughs> is that is that what it feels like to you i don't even want to say that because that's not a bad thing it just feels like it dried out my tongue it's not excessively dry. Like I've had some wines, like some some rich Napa cabs or whatever, like that, that suck all the moisture out of your mouth, and it feels like you've just sucked on a dry piece of sponge, and your tongue is, it it, it suddenly turns your tongue into a bunch of sticks. You don't feel um, like that, and it feels a, a little bit like that. So there's an element of that dryness to it. It's definitely a dry wine. Okay. There's definitely elements of tannin to it, mm-hmm. uh, with the, which is taking the moisture out of your mouth and, and breaking down those proteins in your saliva. So it's definitely got that to it. It's got a, I'd say. Whew, um, that little bit I swallowed there, um, I'm going to say it's got a medium plus alcohol to this. It's probably around, I'm going to guess 14, five. Um, okay. so it's a little warmer. It's a, it's a, it's a hotter wine. Um, but it's not unpleasant that way. It's actually got a great balance to it. Um, there's a lot of fruit on the palate as well, but it's not fruit first. It's like, it comes no. across, um, yeah, it's, it's got that, it's got that, uh, soft leather and, and, um, that the smells of a, of a, of an old trunk. Almost uh, hints mm. of dust, and then up first, and then then the uh, the palate just gets you know washed with blackberry and dark raspberry of and black cherry. Writing, mm-hmm. 
because it just sounds great. Dust of an old trunk. Come on. Well, because you who you, says that you 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 can see that image in your head, and we we can all associate yeah. that with the open an old suitcase, and suddenly there's a, a smell mm-hmm. that comes out, and it smells a little bit dusty and a little bit like uh like the like like history in yeah. a way, and and it's a very distinct smell. That's and it, very and, cool. And that's kind of what you get at first when you take that first drink. Is it? It's it's very reminiscent. Reminiscent. Redolent Remini- of that. Reminiscent. What is that? Um, the author that wrote the beautiful piece about wine. About the wine being a dress. Come on. You just showed it to me. It was on Instagram. And it was like, why can't I write a piece about wine like this? And I was like, yeah, wine is like a dress. Nope. Okay, I'm going to pause long time here. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so I'm on Facebook. I'm part of a, I'm, I'm part of a wine study program uh, group. It's a, it's a Facebook group. And it's a bunch of people that are working towards their WSET, which is more of a... a, a a literary approach towards wine. And so part of what you have to do when you're taking and testing for WSET is you have to write wine descriptions. And that, I showed you that wine description of the guy who just started waxing rhapsodic about how this woman was walking down the runway draped in satiny, billowing mm-hmm. crimson, and, and just – it was almost erotica the way it was written. It was. It was gorgeous. And it, it, it was gorgeous. It was a visually very, all very appealing, but it didn't elicit any sense of taste. Right, but when you taste that, that's what I do with the whole Esther Williams thing. When mm-hmm. I taste a wine like this, and when I see this color, that's what I see. I see like a gorgeous woman in a dress. I see a dress that I want to put on my body. I see taffeta, and that's what I see. So it's like saying, trying to relate the taste with what my visual is right but your visual i i think that when you're describing wine what's important is to to elicit um sense memories that are closely associated with what you're actually getting from wine now visually the wine there's a visual aspect that needs to be described with wine absolutely color um you know and viscosity there's a sensuality to wine in the glass that can be described visually but that is all visual cues and that's not going to give you any hint of what it's going to taste like but describing something that's as with a smell of an of a, of a musty trunk and and having the right. richness of a, of a of freshly turned earth or or, mm-hmm. or potting soil you can taste that and you never tasted potting soil most people haven't but most people have smelled potting soil and right. it, and that that sense of smell and that sense of taste are so intricately linked that you describe that smell and suddenly people can taste it you talk about dark cherries you know rich Mm -hmm. ripe dark cherries people can taste that it makes them start salivating so when you describe that as being in a wine as opposed to being you know she strutted in a chiffon dress um you don't generally speaking taste a strutting chiffon dress no but you want to and that may be a very singular (laughs) group of people that belong to that category Uh, which is why i I showed it to you because i knew it would resonate with right and i think that's where we're different is that i I do think in pictures mm-hmm. and my whole, my whole thought process is one big, huge technicolor movie. <laughs> well, and, and it, it's lovely to have that cinematographic, cinematographic, you know, that, that whole, you know, pan, panavision experience right. going on in your head, but making it relatable to other people mm-hmm. is the key to wine descriptions. Yes, because agreed. Ultimately, what you're trying to do when you're describing wine is you want to make it, and this is where it comes back to making wine accessible again. When you walk up to the table and saying, "Oh my God, Esther has a chiffon dress on and she's wearing a bathing cap," 
<laughs> probably isn't going to help you sell the wine to anyone because they're not going to know what you're talking about. But if There's you can, flowers on it. If you can talk about <laughs> the, the, this floral, rich aroma that almost right. smells like crimson, you know, you know, then people start to get a sense of that. And suddenly yes. it intrigues them and makes them want to go. It's like, oh, it tastes like Bing cherries in a dusty old trunk. That sounds really fascinating. That's I bet that's going to go great with blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So this wine, I think, is, is really fascinating that way because it has so many descriptors that can be applied to it. But it definitely – it has fruit to it, but it definitely doesn't lead with that. Um, so let's let's try the wine again and then tell me what you think uh, the wine is. I'm going to say a Syrah. Okay. I'm wrong. <laughs> well, no, you're not – I mean, why would you say it was a Syrah? There's, there's reasons behind that. Something makes you go Syrah. Okay, because it's the type of wine I really like. I really love Syrah. Syrah is, to me, not as dense or chewy as a Cabernet. Mm -hmm. Um, It has a little bit more fruit to it, but it's still dry. Okay. And so whatever this is, this is what I would want to drink. Okay. Well, and and you're stumbling across some fascinating things because you describe Syrah in a way that indicates Syrah – um, kind of an old world Syrah, really. You're not talking about new world Syrah because new world Syrah is coming out of California or coming out of um, Australia. In a lot of cases, generally have a lot of fruit to them and a lot of pepper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're really they're really exciting that way, and they're really rich. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're describing Syrahs that are kind of like old world. They're 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 softer. Mm-hmm. They're 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 um they're lighter in body, uh, and they're they're definitely they got fruit going to them, but they're balanced. Um, and they're so. Uh, that if you're trying to judge a wine blind, those are some interesting tells because if you're thinking old world Syrah, you need to know why you're thinking that. Okay. But if you're thinking new world Syrah, you need to know why you're thinking that too. Okay. Wines that grow in the new world tend to grow in hotter climates, which means they're very, uh, very acidic, not very acidic. They're very fruity. They're very high alcohol. Mm -hmm. Wines that grow in the old world in Europe tend to grow in cooler climates. So they tend to be more acid-driven. They tend to be softer. They tend to have fruit as a secondary characteristic. Okay. So what we're getting from this wine on the nose is earth and dirt first, Mm -hmm. and dust and leather, and then fruit. What we're getting on the palate is, again, a little bit of earthiness first, a little bit of that leather first, then followed by fruit, Mm -hmm. um, followed by a long, complex finish. Um, So based on what I've just told you, old world and new world. Um, I, uh, I, well, (laughs) and here's the test. Were you listening? (laughs) Well, I was listening old world. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So this wine is actually an old world wine. Um, it's not Syrah. It's Mm -hmm. actually, it comes from Bordeaux. Uh, and Bordeaux is, is the cradle of, uh, English wine drinking. Um, you know, like from Downton Abbey. Well, well, this is the kind of wine they would have called a a claret. claret. That's exactly right. Really? (laughs) That's absolutely right. Oh, I'd like another claret, please. Well, and 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 there's such a history, and one of the reasons I love Bordeaux is is more because of the history than actually for the wines. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. What this is is this is a fifty fifty blend, more or less, of Merlot and Cabernet. This is um, this is uh, uh, well here. This wine is Chateau Saint Corbion Saint Estef, uh, 2012 Cuvée Prestige. Wow! So it is. It comes out of the Bordeaux area. So um, if you're thinking of how England and France interact, right? So England is off the coast of France. Okay. And 
if you go around that little that little output and head down the coast, there's a couple of rivers that could lead to this long estuary that comes out of of, of um, France in that big bay right above Spain, and that's Bordeaux in there. And there's these two rivers, the Dordogne and the and the, the Gironde, um, and they form this bay and they go out there, and it became a major trading hub for the English mm-hmm. because all these rivers led to this port area. And so um, what came down the river in a lot of cases was French wine. So at one point, the French said, why do we keep bringing wine down when we can just grow it here and sell (laughs) it to the English who will buy anything? (laughs) Um, And so that's why Bordeaux became a wine-growing region originally. Now, it didn't start there. It started with the Romans, as so many things do. Right. So what you have is these two rivers leading to this estuary, this confluence where they they meet and then they lead out to the sea. And so as with so many rivers, when rivers come down out of the mountains, they bring lots of silt and soil and stuff. So it was a very large, wet, marshy area. It was, wasn't very good for growing wine, but mm-hmm. it was right next to the coast. And there's compromises that have to be made. So you've got this Atlantic Ocean weather coming in, which is fairly cool. You've got this fairly marshy land there, but there are hills there. So the Romans were growing wine there because they basically set up a fort there and they needed to supply their soldiers with wine. So there was wine growing happening all around the first century there. Okay. Um, it kept going. They kept growing wine there for you know hundreds of years on again, off again. They found better areas to grow wine. But it wasn't until probably the 12th century or so when Henry, um, you know, Henry Buzafachi from England married Eleanor of Aquitaine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Eleanor of Aquitaine, who's French, a part of her marriage deal, she made the wines of the court her native wines because that meant the English had to buy all the wine from her people, from her oh. old province. Very smart, politically. Because yes. <laughs> that meant that they had to supply wine, which meant there was money flowing from the English for her she got married into, back into her, her homeland, back into her people, back into her, her old, you know, which, of course, she had a separate purse that belonged to her, so it also provided her with money. Mm-hmm. Very smart lady, Eleanor mm-hmm. Racketain. So the Bordeaux wines were actually um, being promulgated because of this marriage. Okay. Um, and so, uh, this lasted, that was like what, 12th, 13th century or so like that. And then, um, in the 17th century or so, I mean, the Bordeaux has been growing wine. It's been shipping wine. Um, now the Dutch, okay. We're talking pre-Napoleonic war. The Dutch have this major trading empire, right? They've been going for like, you know, ever since the founding of America, they have this major, so the Dutch are everywhere. And they realized that if they have these major shipping ports using the, 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 the Bordeaux area again, that they can grow more wine there if they drain the estuary. Oh. So they actually brought their hydraulic skills and their dam building <laughs> skills to the Bordeaux area. And, and it was the Dutch who live underwater for the most part. Mm-hmm. And they're constantly, you know, fighting that battle, brought those skills there. And they actually created some of the first arable land for growing grapes all along this estuary. They created the modern Bordeaux growing areas. Oh, that's really cool. Really cool contribution. So if you go there, there's these, there's these gravelly hills mm-hmm. and then there's these these little valleys that go in between them where they've created basically they've they've dried out the land they've mm-hmm. drained the marshes and made it arable farmland so you have this incredible growing area there and the french um have the left bank which grows cabernet particularly well okay and then they have the right bank which grows merlot particularly well mm-hmm. and they have like seven grapes that they're allowed to grow there that they're allowed to go into the wine and it's cabernet 
it's Merlot, it's Camp Franc, it's Malbec, it's uh, it's um, uh, two or three others, um, Petit Verdot, I think, and then mm-hmm. so those are what they make the Bordeaux blend out of. That's what they make claret out of, and those are the wines that were shipped to the English when the English were conquering the world, and those are the red wines that defined the red wine style for the rest of the world till modern day. When we think of red wine, we think of Bordeaux wine. Mm-hmm. Because it's this culmination of all these different elements that came together. It's these seven grape varietals blended together to create a wine. Now, why seven grape varietals? I don't know, Alex. <laughs> Tell me why. Because it's a terrible place to grow grapes. <laughs> oh, so these are the only ones that survived? Well, because you need balance. You need more You need more colors on your paint palette. If you're going to make a wine every year, um, you know, you got this Atlantic cool weather coming in. You're growing in crappy soil, you know, and stuff like that. So you need grapes that ripen early. You need grapes that ripen late. You need grapes that can withstand the, the, the wet weather. You need grapes that can withstand the dry weather. <laughs> so that some year you're going to get enough grapes from something to make a wine with so you can sell it so you can make money to grow wine again the next year so you're just stacking the deck that's all Bordeaux they were doing is just stacking the deck they were totally stacking the deck for themselves by picking seven varietals that worked to make the wine they wanted to make and now um now we have so much more control over wine making than we used to even a hundred years ago because we can do we can control the temperatures when we ferment we can control the temperatures of our coolers our cellars so they can control a lot more in the winery than they used to we still can't control the weather but Bordeaux is the area in the world that sells some of the most expensive wine in the world mm-hmm. because they have this classification and thinking 17 has a habit. Right. Um, when the French king for an international uh, you know, world fair said that he, what he wanted to do is he wanted to rank all the wine. So he told the Bordelais, he said to them, it's like, um, you pick who's best. You decide who's oh. best and tell me and then send your best wines to my fair. And so they looked at what the current market prices were and they decided, okay, these for these five here are the best wines in Bordeaux. These are first growth wines. And then these 19 are second growth. And then these blah, blah, blah are third growth. These are fourth growth. These are fifth growth. And they can command certain amounts of prices based on where they fell in that ranking. And that ranking has not changed in 200 years. That's so weird. It, well, that's the French for you. When you, when you, if you find <laughs> out you're the most. Sorry, enough, French. Well, <laughs> Sorry, France. You're a you're a you're a negotiant house. You're a, you're a buying and selling house in um, in France, and you have the most popular wine, the most expensive wine. Now you can command the best prices. So now you command the best prices. You have the most money. Who do you think has the most political power yeah, to defend uh, their absolutely. position? Absolutely, the I people get have it. the money. Absolutely. Hello. So these five houses defended their rights for a very long time, and then and then um, Mouton Rothschild, uh, the Baron Rothschild, was so mad that he got classified in the second growth that he he. he he basically he fought his entire life to get bumped up to the, the first growth. He was mm-hmm. the only change that ever happened there. <laughs> so I mean, it's just these great stories of these great people doing these these amazing things, um, you know, and and creating these wines. And these wines are the wines that you know really set the benchmark for California. Mm-hmm. When California was growing Cabernet, and um, Robert Mondavi was comparing himself and what his wine room was doing and what, what his brother and he were doing, he was t- testing himself against Lafitte Rothschild. Against Is he the Luton one that Rothschild. said, I will sell no wine before it's time? No. Oh, okay. No, who was that? That was Perry Mason. Uh, what's his name? Fat guy. Beard. Orson Welles. Orson Welles. Orson Welles was doing that for, for a, I forget what company, but in okay. the 70s. So no, it was. It wasn't it was, Mondavi. I thought it was no. Mondavi. Um, 
So, but I mean, these were the classic French wines that that had had set the stage for the world, uh, based on these basic varieties that you now find all over the world. These are these are the noble varieties: Merlot and Cabernet and Cab Franc. Um, so really exciting. And so being able to get a wine like this and being able to pour it, I'm not surprised that you like it. This is all the varieties you like. I love it. But it's not like a California style. It's not, no, it's not, it's not a style up. that I would normally like. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. I, honestly, I don't know what I would normally like, but I like it a lot. You used to like really big punchy wines. Lots of tannins, lots of alcohol, lots of berries, things that let you know you were drinking wine. Right, but it seems like now, and that's, it's like a new chapter for me, Mm -hmm. because it seems like now that when I get a really jammy wine, I kind of think it's gross. I I think it tastes like Costco strawberry jam. Sorry, Costco. Um, But it's it's so sweet and, um, and... It just doesn't, I don't know, it's not pleasant. There's nothing pleasant about it. It's 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 like drinking a soda almost. Well, and, and there's a wine for every every person and every occasion. Now, some people, you know, they, they spend their entire life drinking Miller High Life, and they're very happy with that. That's what they want to drink, or Oli, right. or Pabst. You know, these are, these are beers that are meant to meet their palate, and they like drinking them because they suit them in a certain occasion. They're quaffable, they have alcohol, they can drink a lot of them, whatever, they make them happy. And they drink that, and they drink Jack Daniels, or they drink Jim Beam, you know, and they, these are, are larger production spirits that have a certain house style that's consistent. So a lot of wines are like that. A lot of wines are meant to meet a certain demand. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that younger drinker or that newer drinker who has a certain expectation of what wine should taste like. And let's be honest, it's grape juice, you know, so grape right. juice should usually taste kind of sweet. Um, so there's a certain expectation. But as you drink more in depth and as you start to think about what you're drinking, you begin to actually, your 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 tastes change. Well, and it feels like my tastes are delineating these different things even though i i still get really nervous when you say what does it smell like and was it what does mm-hmm. it taste like i know when i taste it that it's like oh yeah that's like i can tell a bad wine now where before honestly i would be like well wine kind of sucks sometimes so maybe this is just what it is right and now i'm like oh no i think that's bad <laughs> well and, and you just said something very important you think it's bad so you can tell a wine that doesn't meet your palate. So there's a difference between telling what a bad wine is because it's flawed or has faults. Right. That's and, what I meant. Right. A flawed wine, I I maybe at one point in my life would have still but in, drank. In, 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 and also just knowing the difference between that and a wine you don't like. And, and all you know, most drinkers who choose to listen to their palates will experience this growth almost, in, almost inevitably. And that's kind of the cool thing about this whole process is right. that, you know, there are there are people who choose not to. They're just going for the effect. The entire point of drinking is for the effect. The, the You know, it's not about the flavor. It's about the the feeling mm-hmm. um, when you – after you drank a certain quantity. And that's a whole different style of drinking than drinking wine. Right. Um, and wine drinking, generally speaking, is if you give it the opportunity to inform you and to listen to what you're doing and not gas on about it like I'm doing right now. But, you know, you you will – your palate will develop and you'll find things you like about different things and you'll start to learn about it. And you'll go, oh, I do like Bordeaux wines. I hate Burgundy wines. Or I don't like Shiraz anymore. I like Syrah from, from the New World. And you begin to discover things you actually like. And then that's when pairing food to wine becomes so exciting because now you know the differences. Right. Different wines will now go better with different foods. We don't always want Mexican food. 
Mm-hmm. We don't always want Italian food, but when we do want Italian food, suddenly we're thinking, it's like, you know what would go really well with this, mm. surprisingly, is a good Chianti. If you're having Mexican food, food, Mexican food, you're suddenly thinking, it's like, you know what would go really well with this? You know, maybe a sparkling wine. Maybe that would go really well with this. Or maybe a Riesling. That would be fun. Let's try that. Let's see how that goes. And suddenly you're starting to mix and match these different colors in your palate to these different colors in your food palate. And now you've got wine pairing going on. That's when it becomes exciting. It's not a bunch of hooey. It's a bunch of, of opportunity because the more colors you get on your paint palette, suddenly the better and bolder pictures you can make. Well, and back to the education part, mm-hmm. because I am just struck by how much you actually know. And it's not just about the wine that you know. It's about the history of the wine and where it came from. And I don't know how many centuries you just crossed <laughs> in your in your explanation, but it's fascinating to me that the Romans would have had a similar drink that we're having right now in the pod basement. Well, and and to me, that's just really cool. It means we're all kind of linked. It is. I mean, that's a great through line through history is, is the beverages that we share. Now, will we ever know exactly what they drank? No. Um, because the way they made wine and the way they transported wine. Now the Romans are really cool. I can go off about the Romans for ages because <laughs> you need, we need to have a whole <laughs> podcast about the Romans cause they are really cool. It's not even one. I mean, okay. So I know <laughs> they, they're, they're hopping the coasts in these boats in these little boats and they never get far enough away from the shore that they lose sight of land or they'll get lost cause they still haven't mastered navigation. But in the bottom of their boats, there's a layer of sand where they have these pointy amphoras stood up locked side by side. And these amphoras are these long, like 60 gallon bottles made out of clay with handles on them that are sealed at the top with like either resin or wax or lead. Mm -hmm. And they have all these bottles stacked up in such a way that they're all linked so they won't shift during shipping. Okay. And then they have special stands that hold them that, you know, you, you, it takes two people to carry these large jars in and then they, they can, they can set it down. And then they do like the Greeks used to do. They actually mix their wine before they drink it. The wine they made was only good for one season. Okay. You didn't age wine then. It didn't have time to age. Right. And a lot of times the wines they made were so bad that they flavored them with pine and with resins and with flowers and with ground minerals and with chalk and with lead, um, with herbs and with spices. And then when they mixed the wine, they would mix it with water to get it to the right amount and right consistency in a bowl. And then they would serve the wine. Mm -hmm. So wine drinking was a whole different experience then. And when you opened one of these large um, amphorae, you were committed to it at that point because it was going to start going bad. So that's why you did your drinking in large groups. Ah. You didn't have small containers like bottles and stuff. Right. So it's really kind of interesting. And and this was the wine, you know, that, that their soldiers marched on in a lot of cases too. Uh, so it, it's all over the Roman Empire, everywhere they went, and particularly on the ports because they can move this heavy stuff by water a heck of a lot easier than they can move it by land. Mm-hmm. They didn't have barrels the way we have them now. Mm-hmm. So that's why you see all these port cities featuring wine, and we find history, you know, they're finding sunken ships now even with the M4A still oh, that's in so underwater. Cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And um, so, I mean, the Romans are really exciting, and they really laid the base for something that people in France and in Spain and in Portugal uh, and England even um, have been expanding upon ever since. So this shared beverage of the Caesars, of the common man, of the soldiers, is the shared beverage of the musketeers, is Mm -hmm. the shared beverage of the Napoleonic soldiers that marched, uh, you know, uh, to Russia, is the shared beverage of the Germans, is the shared beverage of the, of the, the doughboys. You know, it's the shared right. beverage of every every man and woman um, since we discovered grapes could produce this, and we have it today. It's really exciting. Well, and that I think it's interesting 
in that you have chosen this for your vocation. And I've chosen yoga because yoga is, it is unity, right? And so, yes, part of yoga is the movement, the asana, the, um, you know, physical part of it. But there's other limbs to the whole yoga picture. And they're all about community and basically that we're all the same. We're all one. And that's why there's critical mass and all that kind of um, okay, so you have to cut this out because now I'm <laughs> now I'm going off too far. But I think that's I think it's a I think it's a wonderful thing that in such different vocations there's so many similarities. Well, I think something that you and I share that that you you touched on, but we can continue to explore is the fact that we're both in service positions still. Mm-hmm. We are here to take care of other people. Your job is to teach and to instruct and to help them become better physically through movement, mm-hmm. through patience, through understanding, and through phys- physical personal growth. And my job is to provide people with an experience that helps them, I don't know, it's to create an experience. You know, we all have to eat, but very few of us actually dine. And dine well. And so we're here about creating experiences that tie people together. We're shared moments in time. When I do a wine event, it's 100 people that are sharing a wine, sharing a food item, and sharing a time together. And it's something that they now have in common. And then they can talk about later. It brings people together. This is a communal right. thing. You do it the same thing in your classes. This is Absolutely. 18 to 20 people that are sharing a communal experience. Um, they're all and being led. And it's not just moving your body. It's... It's the emotional component as well. That's why yoga is different because mm-hmm. there is a there is a release in yoga and there's a community in yoga that you're not going to get in spin class. Okay, stop. I'm <laughs> stopping. I'm stopping. <laughs> so, um, Rabbit so, yeah, hole. so yeah, that uh, this is a Chateau Saint Corbillon stuff. Uh, 2012 Cuvée Prestige. This wine is seven years old uh, and it just started drinking well. I was looking at the tasting notes. Um, from uh from the the vintner and they rec- because of the growing season in 2012 it was cool it was late to ripen which meant it was higher acid it needed time to come into balance they said that 2018 was probably the earliest you should open the bottle so um it's really showing well now and i think it's only going to get better over the next three to four years so great wine um yeah so this is a psalm thing to drink about um you can catch us on itunes spotify stitcher uh breaker you can see us on the web uh come see us on instagram see us on facebook uh if you have any questions comments ideas suggestions we'd love to hear them um i'm just so pleased that so many people are tuning in we have listeners in norway sweden uh new jersey australia thailand alaska it's amazing uh that uh something so simple could bring so many people together so i'm alex thank you i'm christy and uh this has been some thing to drink about